The spiritual richness of the Psalms is the result of their ability to portray the human condition and capture human emotions in ways we, the readers, can relate to. Whether that's through the praise and joy displayed by a worshiper in God's house, or the grief and anger demonstrated in the heart of a mourner. Some of the Psalms dwell on God's transcendence, his wisdom, his judgment, and our relationship between these things. Others are messianic in nature, such as today's text. And that means they were written in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, his covenantal work, and the benefits we as God's people receive. But this diversity is not accidental, it's intentional. Intentional because the Psalms speak into every person's life journey, speaks truth to us for the purpose of focusing us on the one and true living God. And we see in the Psalms that in this one and true living God that he is faithful to and blesses those who seek, trust, and rest in him alone. This truth is underscored in today's text as the psalmist David speaks about his confidence in God's covenant faithfulness to him and the blessings he anticipated both in the present and in the future as he sought to live as a faithful servant before the Lord. Please listen as I reread our text this morning, Psalm 16. Hear the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Father, were the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And may we as your people not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, Jeff, at least you've still got your health. That's a phrase I've internally mulled over and externally muttered to myself many times over many years up until recently. You see, that phrase helped to alleviate some of the disappointment I've had in past choices and experiences, whether that was feeling undervalued professionally or failing to fulfill certain dreams I had or thinking I'm stuck and unable to move forward. The idea of still having my health meant there was still enough time to advance professionally 
fulfill those dreams that I had and somehow better my situation by making good on the remaining years. In essence, the comfort I received by thinking I still have my health was a way of expressing my hope and desire to live a life of significance and satisfaction before death. After all, it's, it's human nature to want to look back and say we lived a meaningful life, that we made the most of our opportunities, that we were the best versions of ourselves, and that we ultimately made a lasting difference. But my friends, what, what happens when your health starts to decline or outright fails you, and time starts slipping away? What then? What do you do? For me, those are the thoughts I now internally mull over and externally mutter to myself. Since 2019, I've been diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat, received chemotherapy for cancer, and most recently been told I have a fractured vertebrae that will never refuse. All of these things have squashed the sentiment, well, Jeff, at least you've still got your health, and put into question the fruitfulness and longevity of my future. Now, I'm not sharing this information to garner sympathy or to have a who's who of the worst health issues because of a need to be in the spotlight. Quite the opposite. I'm sharing this because I imagine some of you are currently wrestling with serious health problems and maybe thinking similar thoughts. But if not, you soon will be. After all, bodily decay is an unavoidable part of the curse. Or maybe you're just questioning the trajectory of your own life and other serious matters, evaluating the things you've done and the things you've left undone. My brothers and sisters, all of us desire to live a meaningful life, a life of significance and satisfaction. Sadly, we often, we often seek it apart from God and in all the wrong places, whether that's through worldly accomplishments, acquaintances, ambitions, or through self-discovery, self-reliance, and self-improvement. Ultimately, all these paths are unfulfilling and only create more questions, frustrations, and doubt, especially in the face of decay and death. But in Psalm 16, in our text this morning, we are reminded that a life of significance and satisfaction occurs not when we seek meaning on our own terms, but when we center our affections and desires on the Lord and toward the things of the Lord. Consequently, living a life of significance and satisfaction is directly connected to our relationship with God, his faithfulness to us, our faithfulness and obedience to him. That's all that really matters in life. So if you find yourself wondering about your own life, well, I have good news for you today. But what's our starting point? Well, where do we begin? Well, I have two points for you this morning two gospel truths I want to communicate. And the first point is this. Living a life of significance and satisfaction only occurs when we trust in and faithfully live before the Lord. Look back at the opening verse of our text. We read, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now right off the bat, David, our psalmist, acknowledges that for his life to have any meaning, any significance, any satisfaction, he must seek the Lord's protection. He must take refuge in him. However, to seek refuge in something other than yourself requires that you relinquish control. And I'm here to tell you, and you know this, that's extremely difficult to do. 
You see, relinquishing control means letting go of the idols of independence and self-reliance. But that's only hard if you're ignorant of the reality of the thing that you're actually trusting in. So what this verse conveys is that David knows what kind of God the Lord is. Well, the psalm opens with the request of preserve me and thus reflects an opening customary of laments recounting a crisis. There's actually no ultimate concern at all since David is confident in the Lord's ability to protect him as we will see in the following verses. You see, David was an accomplished military soldier and a leader. In his earliest days, David slew Goliath. Under Saul, he was the armor bearer and then the uh, captain of the Lord's army, and he slew thousands of Philistines. While in hiding, David skillfully eluded Saul, and as king, David defeated all of Israel's enemies and unified the kingdom. David's military curriculum vitae, his resume, would be worthy of an appointment at West Point Academy. However, David didn't win all those battles, receive those promotions, nor unite the kingdom in his own strength. But because he trusted in the Lord, sought his protection. None of those things, none of it was possible, nor his preservation apart from God's covenant faithfulness to him. And that's the thing, thing for us, beloved. The significance and satisfaction we crave comes from trusting in God and living before him, not finding security through our own means. This is why David boldly proclaims in verse 2, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The my Lord highlights David's submission. It underscores their covenant relationship. The Lord is David's master, and David is the Lord's servant. And this isn't a bad thing, quite the opposite. There are great benefits from trusting in the Lord and being his faithful servant. You see, by claiming God as his Lord, David provides a good reason for why he should be preserved. David is loyal. He has no other allegiance, divine or otherwise. But not only is David's security tied to the Lord, but so is his well-being, his welfare. I have no good apart from you. Literally reads in the Hebrew, my good is not beyond you. And the my good is best understood as meaning my care, my happiness. This means it is God alone who provides. There's no ending to his provision. He provides it all, and there is no one else or even ourselves. There's nothing that we can do or that we can offer. And isn't that really a freeing thing? Isn't that freeing to think about? Instead of looking for meaning from others or from oneself in order to manufacture your own significance and satisfaction, it's the sovereign Lord who provides us with everything, especially meaning, especially purpose. The Christian's calling, our calling, mine and your calling. It's not to be great, to seem great, or to do great, but to trust in and live faithfully before the Lord. As the Apostle Paul asserts in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12, and as Josh, Pastor Josh reminds us, the calling of the Christian is to love one another, live a quiet life, mind our own business, and to work with our hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. 
which is why David takes great delight in the saints of the land in verse 3. And he eschews, he shuns the wicked who chase after other gods in verse 4. You see, another part of what it means to trust in and live before the Lord is also connected to who we associate with, as well as what and how we worship. The word saints in verse 3, it literally means holy ones. It highlights the special status of God's people. These holy ones are meant to be separate. They're to be consecrated. They're to be different. They're to be holy as God is holy. David highlights in the saints before he, or David delights in the saints because he identifies with them. Like himself, these people are loyal to the Lord and worship him alone. Unlike the unrighteous who have forsaken the Lord, have sworn allegiance to other gods and participate in pagan rituals. By delighting in the saints, David is voicing the importance of this group in his life. And that should be the same for us, beloved. Even though Colleyville Presbyterian is filled with people of all different kinds of backgrounds, struggles, interests, and different personalities, some of whom we may even be in conflict with, our union with Christ means that we share in God's covenant faithfulness and blessings as well as in a shared calling, a belief system, a way of life. To fully trust in and faithfully live before the Lord means to be actively a part of Christ's body. So to ignore or forsake the people of God by retreating into the world in search of significance and satisfaction is a dangerous thing. It opens us up to the pursuit of false idols. John Calvin articulated this truth in the following statement. He said, we ought therefore highly to value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God and to regard nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves with their society. And this we will actually do if we wisely reflect in what true excellence and dignity consist. And do not allow the vain splendor of the world and its deceitful pomps to dazzle our eyes. You see, for King David, for the theologian John Calvin, significance and satisfaction were found in one's relationship to God and in one's relationship to the saints, not through worldly pursuits. Consequently, meaning is tied to weightier ideas, trusting in and living faithfully before the Lord as it concerns one's security, well-being, acquaintances, worship. But in addition to those things, David also comments on his own ambitions. Verse 5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. While it would have been easy and certainly impressive for David to list all the things he accomplished, all the things that he physically possessed as king, he did not do that. Instead, David's ambitions, his significance and satisfaction are tied to the Lord when he states, the Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup, my lot. See, God's faithfulness was intertwined with the promised land vis-a-vis -vis the people's inheritance of the land and God's presence amongst them in the land. It was God's gift to them. So the allotment of physical land to the people outlined in the book of Joshua was the sign of God's covenantal love to them. However, there was one group, there was one tribe who didn't receive an allotment of land, the Levitical priests. 
while the other tribes were sustained in the normal way from the produce of the land and the priests always owed their survival directly to God. Remember, the priests lived off the fruit, grain, and meat offerings brought to the Lord in his house by the other tribes. So when our psalmist says that the Lord is his portion, he is confessing that his past, his present, his future ultimately resides with God. He is confessing that God represents his true, his one and true dwelling place. The land and his accomplishments, his ambitions, they are not his possession. No, his security, his well-being, those are found in the Lord himself. So when you fully trust in and live faithfully before the Lord, God, he gives you himself, his very being. And when he gives you himself, his own presence, everything else falls in line. You don't have to go searching for significance or searching for satisfaction. God provides it through his own presence. This is why David says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Compared to land allotment, compared to ambitions, possessing the Lord is a far, far greater inheritance and blessing. And this leads us to our second and final point, which is when we trust in and live faithfully before the Lord, we are blessed by him and are the heirs of eternal life. We're the heirs of Christ. Look again at verses 7 and 8. They read, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. The Lord has been such a blessing to David that he in turn blesses the Lord. But to bless the Lord doesn't mean that David is providing for God's own security or welfare or ambitions. No, to bless the Lord is an act of worship. It's an act of praise. And David blesses the Lord because God gives him counsel and instruction. You see, the Lord is a fountain of wisdom whereby David's heart is nourished, even in the night. During the day's busyness, it's easy to ignore problems. But during the night, lying awake in bed, that's another story altogether. And if you're like me, that's when your mind comes alive. Last year, when going through chemotherapy, I had lots of restless nights. I thought about myself and my family and our future. My mind was alive. However, the Lord met with me in the darkness of the night through my tears, anguish, and even laughter. You see, I had a private worship service almost every night, sometimes at 1, 2, 3 a.m. or beyond. Unbeknownst to Kendall, who was lying beside me in bed, I was singing, raising my hands, and talking to Jesus. <clears throat> it was a sweet time. It was during this time that the Lord blessed me, providing me with significance and confidence and hope. Comparably, because the Lord was always before David, whether morning or evening, he was blessed with an unshakable confidence. And this confidence was real, not manufactured. 
It was real because where the Lord positioned himself at David's right hand. Within an ancient military context, an armed soldier usually held a shield in his left hand and a weapon in his right. But this meant that the soldier was vulnerable on his right side. Consequently, the warrior to the right of that soldier had the honor of defending this person with his own shield. Likewise, because the Lord takes up position alongside David's right side, and because the Lord takes up position on our right side, he is always in position to tevent us. He is always in position to take the brunt of the full force of the enemy's attacks, including decay and death. This is why we have no reason to be shaken, whether we face adversity or tragedy in the present or in the future. This is why David's heart is glad and his whole being rejoices in the first part of nine. You see, David, he knows something. He has a secret. He knows that no matter what happens to him, the Lord will continue to protect him. The Lord will continue to bless him, both in this life and in the next. The second part of verse 9 and 10 says, My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Where does this confidence come from? How does he know his flesh is secure? It will not see corruption. How does he know his soul will not be abandoned? Sure. Sorry. David has confidence because he knows the quality of the one who he's put his trust in and faithfulness and lived faithfully before. The Lord, who is always faithful to his covenant and promised to always be Israel's God and to bless his people, which included himself. You see, David believed that the covenant promises extended beyond the grave, which is what is meant by the term Sheol. Despite being aware of his own mortality, he's told that he'll die in 2 Samuel 7. He knew God's faithfulness to him was everlasting Though the doctrine of the afterlife was shrouded or veiled within the Old Testament in some respects, the covenant language itself, the covenant that God made with his people, the promises that God made, always pointed to something greater, something beyond. I mean, what, what sense would it have made if David, if God had established a covenant with David only to forsake him at the moment of death? What ultimate benefit would it have been for us, for him, if God only cared for his people on this side of eternity? While it's debated whether David understood what the phrase Holy One meant, if it was only applying to himself or signaled some understanding about the person and work of the coming Messiah, what is unmistakable is how the early church understood it in Psalm 16. Peter in Acts 2, as we read, the connection is clear. He says that the Holy One cannot be David, who at this point has been dead and buried for a thousand years but pointed to God's only begotten son, the promised heir to David's throne, Jesus Christ. Peter says, men of Israel, people of Colleyville, 
hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you be God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And he was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. My friends, the words of the Apostle Peter are comfort and joyful, but not because we will avoid decay or escape death on the onset, but because death and decay do not have the last say. So whether you're struggling with your own mortality or questioning the trajectory of your life, the good news of the gospel is that your significance and satisfaction is bound up in God's covenant faithfulness to you and the promised blessing of eternal life. Beloved, Jesus died in order that he may kill death. Because he killed death, he himself did not experience corruption. He was not abandoned. He was the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. And we are the guarantee of a greater harvest because of his resurrection. Because of this reality, we also will not experience eternal corruption or abandonment. But we will be raised up on the last day. O oh, wretched people, who that we are, who will deliver us from these bodies of death? Thanks be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also says, if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if you're like David, if you're like the living Christ, trusting in and faithfully living before the Lord, then the path of life, God's presence and everlasting pleasures in verse 11 will be yours forever. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we come before you because you are our life. We have nothing apart from you. Father, feed us by your body and blood. Sustain us. Sustain our mortal bodies. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. May we live in the light of that. We thank you that we will experience you forever and ever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.